Currently, District of Columbia Attorney General Carl Racine finds himself engaged in groundbreaking litigation against President Donald Trump, in which Attorney General Racine and his team recently won a historic decision from the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Groundbreaking work is not new to Carl Racine. In 2006, he became the first black managing partner of an Amwal 100 firm when he took over the helm at Venable. Carl dives into the personal and professional challenges he faced during his time at Venable and his decision to leave in pursuit of becoming the District of Columbia's first elected attorney general. We also discuss Carl's time working for President Clinton and the burnout he suffered from such an intense job. Oh yeah, along the way, Carl discusses Michael Jordan urging him to shoot the ball more and Manute Bowl's morning breath. Enjoy this episode of Iron Advocate as we continue to explore how lawyers can kill it in the practice of law without it killing us. You're listening to Iron Advocate, the podcast dedicated to you, the trial attorney, sage, visionary, warrior, unfiltered, no holds barred, Iron Advocate. Join Bob Levant, Jeff Rebel, and today's top legal minds on a journey to discover how to kill it in the law without it killing you. Because being the best advocate for others begins with being the best advocate for yourself. Prior to being elected as the the first attorney general for the District of Columbia, you were the managing partner at at Venable. That's an uh, an AmLaw 100 firm for those who don't know it. How did that job impact you? Tremendously. Uh, First of all, you know, I was uh, very uh, blessed and fortunate to have the opportunity to serve as managing partner. Uh, Back then in 2006, when I became managing partner, I was the first African-American managing partner in AmLaw 100 firm. It was lonely um, at the top or bottom, however way you look at it. Uh, There weren't any other black folks in the top 100. And I gotta tell you, I remember going to a bunch of uh, law firm management conferences. As you know, Jeff, and Bob, I'm a pretty social guy. I can get on with just about anybody, but I found those to be some of the most challenging social environments I'd ever navigated um, from. And it kind of led me to believe that, you know what, there's a reason why there haven't been other African-Americans uh, as managing partners uh, at law firms. Law firms are pretty status quo oriented, um, slow to change, slow to develop, um, and insular uh, organizations. Um, nonetheless, uh, I took the opportunity to try to do all I could to advance the firm and, and also uh, put a different face, if you will, on what a law firm leader might look like and might act like. So, Carl, having lived that, like literally, um, give us some perspective on, on what we do to make the next Carl Racine not feel that way, or how do we make more call receipts? I mean, that's a million-dollar question there, and what you're really asking is, how can law firms be more uh, nurturing, more supportive uh, of uh, minority um, and, and women lawyers? I think a lot of it has to do with changing the culture uh, of a law firm. Um, and as to, as to women, of course, what that means is that they've got to be supportive of women as women enter uh, the time period where they consider having families. 
Um, law firm uh, success stories are plenty, and most of them tend to be white men. And trust me, I've seen uh, those men. I've gotten to go into their houses, and I've seen who's running the show. And it's usually a full-time wife. Um, not a lot of law firm folks have an opportunity to have a full-time, really smart person running the back office of their operation. Um, and so that's a major issue in regards to women. As far as people of color, you know, candidly, a lot of the stereotypes uh, continue to pervade. Um, I remember one time turning in a written product as a first-year associate, and I had somebody take a look at it, and they told me, they said, man, you're lucky I looked at that. And I said, well, why is that? They said, if, I, if, I, if you had submitted that thing without me looking at it, you would have a reputation for as long as you're at this law firm as being yet another African-American who is a poor writer. Um, and so a lot of these stigmas, wow. um, unearned uh, most of the time, uh, follow uh, people of color in the law. Let me just give you another vignette. I used to always tell folks at the law firm when we were dealing with a very talented lawyer who happened to be a person of color who was maybe going through a difficult time, I'd always point out that we're talking about a fifth or sixth year person here, somebody we, we've raised up for five or six years who survived it here. Believe me, there's no way we could raise up another person to have gone through all the travails that this person that we're talking about has gone through. It's our job to help them get through the stage of partnership. So yeah, law firms are tough places. There are places that are insular and closed. Um, and uh, they're like golf clubs that didn't allow certain people to come in. We have to continue to really push them uh, to be inclusive. So, Carl, when you were at Venable, did you, did you find that you were able to make some headway cutting through some of the stereotypes that, 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 that pervade? You say they pervade. They're so underneath the surface. We know they're there, but you can't always get your hands on them. What do you do to, to help? And what did you do when you were working there to try to cut through some of that? Well, number one, just personally, I always try to be on my game. I'm extremely well prepared for every meeting. Always knew that um, or felt like eyes were on, uh, on me um, in order to, uh, you know, to make sure I performed exceedingly well. Um, and then uh, when I became a leader, I tried my best to elevate others, women and people of color, in the summer associate ranks, associate ranks, and partnership ranks, and did little things as a managing partner. For example, I would just literally walk down a hallway and squat in an associate of color's office with the door open for a five or 10 minute chat. Um, that would, generally speaking, redound to that person's benefit because people would say, oh my God, they, they know the managing partner. I would also try to find out from every associate what is their objective and what kind of matters they want to work with? Here's the truth of the matter. Black folks, women, people of color in the law, they want the same thing that white folks want. They want to work on challenging matters that stimulate them, that are meaningful, that allow them the opportunity to grow. And I think that um, being an example and bringing people like that into your work is the best example that you can really show your partners as to the capacity of a group of lawyers who they may not have ordinarily had a chance to work with or go to school with or go to dinner with. So, so Carl, a question about that. What's the, the pressure 
that must have been accompanying having to be on your game? I mean, we all want to be on our game all the time, but the extra pressure when you're the first ever managing partner, African-American managing partner at a, at a AM100 law firm, what was the toll it took on you to be, you know, for lack of a better term, almost the face of the race around there for those folks? <laughs> I, you know, I got to tell you, it took a tremendous toll on me. Um, that's the, uh, the fact of the matter. Uh, the truth is that you work at a, a law firm, um, you know, for money, and that's okay. Um, that's part of the reason why we all get up and go to work. And uh, I was paid, you know, quite handsomely uh, as a partner at Venable, then as a managing partner at the firm. I got to say that for that period of my life, um, I felt like, in hindsight, I was focusing the majority of my day on issues and matters and personnel things that really didn't uh, cause me to derive much meaning uh, from that. And as you and I have talked about, Jeff and Bob, you know, I got to tell you, in the last uh, year and a half or so of my tenure, I became depressed. Um, where literally uh, walking into the building um, was a hard task. And I used to feel like I'd put a mask on, uh, the mask of everything is okay. I'm confident, I'm proud, I am, you know, the face of your excellent law firm. And I'd wear that mask, and then sure enough, at the end of the day, take that thing off, um, and at times, you know, just honestly want to curl up uh, and go to bed, um, because I felt like the bulk of my time was not being spent in a consistent way that I felt my talents needed uh, to be um, devoted. How did you so, get through that period of time? You know, I relied heavily on friends. I relied heavily on uh, my mother. Uh, and then I got to tell you, you know, I sought out counseling. Uh, I also sought out uh, a woman named Barbara Williams Skinner, who provided some religious uh, counseling and therapy to me. And over a period of time, you know, felt, uh, you know, stronger, more centered, more purposed, uh, continued to do my job at the firm, and then would eventually leave the firm to run for attorney general. I got to say, I felt totally liberated uh, once I left that, uh, the law firm. I got to say, the law firm at Venable treated me exceedingly well. I'm sure it would have been a lot more challenging and difficult for me personally elsewhere. It's just that I wasn't devoting my skill set in a way that brought me great meaning. So, Carl, you know, Ray, this isn't a referendum on, on Venable uh, at all. This is a, a, a much broader discussion about the culture of the law that, you know, played out at one place for you. Um, you know, an iron advocate partly for Jeff and I is born of this dialogue about how we try to have a dialogue like we're having with you and make an impact. So the themes that you're raising, while they played out with you as the, the, the kind of this face of the first African-American managing partner, I think are inherent in lawyers everywhere because we're all, um, you know, asked to put on a variety of different roles and, and, and play parts, which can be soul deadening. What do you say to, to every lawyer out there about how you find your vision? What, 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 what do you do and what did you do at that moment in time that allowed you to arrive at a place that has now brought you to something that clearly ignites you, um, still within the law and is igniting you? Can, can you share with us? Yeah, you know, I think it, it was a lot of, um, you know, what I'll call the, the disparate types of therapy 
that I received. Uh, again, you know, honest conversations with uh, friends, you know, deep engagement uh, with the person who knows me the best. Uh, that's my mother. Um, and then going out and talking to professionals as well as religious and spiritual folks kind of brought me right back to the center of why it is, you know, I was attracted to the law in the first place. Um, to be honest, I didn't get into the law to make a ton of money. I wasn't really thinking that way. I got into the law to try to use the law as a way to help someone else. And that someone else being overwhelmingly vulnerable people. Uh, and so going back to that center, that core, what you're calling the vision, means that you, you know, are back to the purpose of why you work so hard. And you can have a better chance of finding the joy within all of this extraordinary hard work. Uh, and there is great joy to be found, of course, uh, in the practice of law. I love listening to your, your guys' podcast, just seeing your faces here, um, because you're always ready to crack a quick smile or make a joke about that big ass microphone Bob has in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's been it's he's been fun. Him. Listen, this is uh it's cathartic for us, right? You know, we've we've taken, you know, plenty of body shots like you have along the way and and y y fun is the word. So so you, you use the, uh, the 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 term, you know, get, you know, get to your what really drives you and, and your passion. So what drives Carl Racine right now? You know, I think what drives me uh, is understanding uh, the, the power that the Office of Attorney General for the District of Columbia has, and then trying to figure out ways with my extremely talented colleagues um, and team for us to use the law to help vulnerable people out. And we do that locally in a big way. Sometimes we're not popular for doing it because we go after historic, longstanding, big donors to politicians in D.C., people who become really wealthy, being close to the system, uh, people who could care less about being a part of a complete displacement of um, you know, large numbers of African-Americans in the District of Columbia, so long as they're getting a cut of the action, and people who will participate in, you know, owning slumlord establishments that are just a, a road on the pathway to this massive displacement that's going on in the District of Columbia. That drives me. Um, having a program like restorative justice in our uh, criminal section at the Office of Attorney General, which is the only restorative justice program in a prosecutor's office in the country, where we give the victim the keys to justice. And the victim and the perpetrator get together with supporters, be it faith folks, family, friends, what have you, to try to figure out what the hell brought them together, why did the culprit do what he or she did, and how can we get to a place where that right is wrong without engagement of the criminal justice system? You know, having the chance to innovate um, in that kind of way again, with just a really talented team that gets me up every single morning. And then we've not even gone to the national stuff. Uh, but as an immigrant, you know, a Haitian American, came here when I was three years old. Um, I know the worth and worthiness of immigrants. 
I also know that every single American is the grandson or granddaughter of an immigrant. Um, and why are we acting now like immigrants, especially brown and black, um, and folks of, uh, you know, Muslim faith, you know, are evil. So I love getting up every day and fighting the hate that permeates 1600 Pennsylvania in the personhood of Donald Trump. Well, let me ask you about that, Carl, because it's, it, that's obviously you probably get more questions about litigation and the way you have, have engaged Donald Trump. And, and as you talk about the, the animus, the, the, the hate that pervades really the whole system in some ways now, but that's really embodied and, and maybe Trump's more just a messenger than anything of what's going on on the on national level. But I've known you for, I think it's now 35 years. And, and as I've known you in your jobs and you worked at the Public Defender Service in DC, I've seen that what animates you is helping vulnerable people. And what I've also seen what animates you is, is you're a very competitive person and you don't like bullies. And that's always been my experience of you. Um, and I've seen you stand up for people, you know, throughout the years in all kinds of different ways. Is some of that what animates the litigation right now against the, the abuses as you refer to at 1600 Pennsylvania? Absolutely. Uh, you know, Jeff, um, and, uh, you know, you described me well there as somebody who's, uh, you know, we've known each other very, very, very well as young men, you know, developing into adulthood, not knowing where the hell we're going to end up. Um, but, uh, but the fact of the matter is there's something wrong, uh, with a bully who picks on people and who finds a way to reward a colleague of deputy bullies, um, in a way that they're loyal, uh, to him. Um, and so what this president has done is he has really gone just underneath the surface of American culture. And he quite recognizes that we are still raw from our history with slavery, that we're still uh, a country, you know, notwithstanding our wealth, where people don't have, you know, a great global sense and understanding that people from elsewhere are more like us than they are different from us. And he's found a way to, as Bob said, to weaponize those differences to the benefit of one person. Uh, and that's, uh, that's Donald Trump. So yeah, he is, um, he's the biggest bully of them all, but it comes into the law because he also is a consistent lawbreaker. Um, you know, we, we filed a suit. It's a crazy, crazy name, the emoluments case. Now, the emoluments is in the Constitution. No one ever knew what the hell the emoluments was. <laughs> They didn't teach that in law school. Y'all took con law, so did I. Yeah, I had to look it up. Pronouncing it. Uh, yeah, yeah, we worked, we practiced it before we, we, we came over with you. We practiced about a half an hour on that before we got on, Carl. Exactly. You know, but the whole deal is that, you know, like Alexander Hamilton, you remember Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Alexander Hamilton himself said, look, man, there can be no greater wrong to this republic uh, if we allow a public official like the president to receive monies from foreign countries, then they're going to be thinking not about what's good for the people, but what's good for himself, the president. And that's what President Trump is doing at the Trump Hotel in D.C. That's why the Attorney General from Maryland, Brian Frosch, and I sued the president. Uh, that's why we won in federal district court. Our case was uh, allowed to go forward. We have 38 active subpoenas. 
The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, three-judge panel, very conservative group, uh, laughed us out of court, dismissed our case. We um, appealed it before the entire Fourth Circuit panel. And just last week, on a nine-to-six decisive basis, they found that the Emoluments Clause is not what Trump said is phony. It's real. Um, And so our case continues. This president is looking to profit from the presidency, and that's illegal. Well, I have a different so, question about that, Carl. It's it's, it's a, a more personal question. Given that um, Mr. Trump has used the state apparatus and he has given his, his conduct before the election, um, given his conduct that led to impeachment, given his firing of the inspector generals and given his behavior across the board, have you ever been personally concerned about threats from him or his people? You know, um, I think, I guess the answer is no. Um, and I think it's because I, you know, have some semblance of, of faith, uh, you know, from family, spirituality, and also uh, religion. And I subscribe to a little vignette in Julius Caesar that Shakespeare talked about, that cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. Seems strange that men should fear death. A necessary end will come when it will come. So I don't worry about that other stuff. Um, and I don't read the comments in the articles. That's where the real crazies appear. Let me share one um, vignette with you. I interacted with the president. I've actually been over to the White House several times, um, you know, at uh, his and other people's invitations. And he has an unusual charm. Um, it's very different from uh, Bill Clinton. I worked for Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton's charm was really based on his, kind of like you two, wanting to get to know you and giving, getting you to really feel that your story mattered to him. President Trump's charm is completely opposite. It's all Trump coming at you, where he is just talking about himself right at you. Um, But I got to tell you, I did sense a charismatic air. And I see that people, you know, tend to follow that. He once tried to ingratiate himself uh, with me at an event uh, where he called me out and thanked me for something um, and claimed (laughs) to actually have known, hey, Carl, I feel like I know you is what he said. (laughs) And I, I stood up and I wish I had a subpoena. Um, but I stood up and I, and I did see a, a Secret Service stand up as well. And I said, sir, I think I know you too. And I do know the president. The president is a self-centered, um, honestly, I think, maniacal leader uh, who is okay with hurting people so long it, as it uh, helps him. Right. He seems that, well, there's some obviously psychological issues that, that others have dissected who are far more credential than we are. We talk about that, but it's, but I think you're, it's a great point. He's, he is very charismatic and he's very shrewd and it he's makes no him, it, no, he is no dummy, despite what some of the folks on the left say about That's him. Right. I want to pivot to some, you said you work for uh, Bill Clinton. Now you were, um, you're one of his lawyers uh, back in the time where he was going through impeachment. Is that right? That's right. I I got there in 1997. Um, A mutual friend of ours hired me, Ms. Cheryl Mills, one of the best lawyers I've ever worked with. Uh, And I was uh, on the investigative team 
uh, there uh, defending the White House and cabinet officials from uh, investigation inquiries from Congress, as well as a number of independent counsel who were there. What was that like for you to work through in the White House, 24-7 media coverage at a time when uh, a president was being impeached? What was that like for you? What did you learn from that? And what did you learn from, from being around such superstar lawyers like Cheryl Mills or Chuck Ruff or, yeah. or Bruce Lindsay? You know, the story of my life as a lawyer, I know you all get into this in your great podcast, is that I've just been extremely fortunate and have been somewhat intentional about bonding with uh, the most talented lawyers um, who were really passionate about their craft. Uh, and so I've had mentors, you know, from my first stint at Venable, Ben Civiletti, a former U.S. Attorney General under President Carter, a, a judge named uh, Judge Amy Jackson, um, you know, really took me under her wings there. And then similarly, um, you know, Chuck Ruff is a legendary lawyer in the District of Columbia who died an untimely death. And people like Cheryl Mills. What I learned um, over at the White House was, my goodness, man, um, there's so much that's not in your control that all you can do as a, as a lawyer is to try to marshal as many facts, you know, that, um, that are, uh, that make your point, um, as possible and to be sanguine on the law. Um, but that, uh, b- both the media and the forces who are opposed against you have a lot to say in how a particular problem gets played out. I remember, for example, participating in a a matter where I I had to uh, kind of, I'll say, leak a story um, regarding the first lady uh, to um, to the press. And it was not going to be, you know, an overly favorable story. There was some, you know, some bad news there. So you had to present it in a in a factual way. But there was also a part of the story that was very, very beneficial and supportive of the first lady's ethics. And so that's what we did. Um, I remember her not being so happy with the way the story came out. <laughs> and I remember having a very difficult conversation with her. I guess I was the recipient. I didn't say much in the conversation. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I remember saying, Jesus, man, is it over yet? Um, and I remember looking at it and my watch for another half an hour. Uh, and then finally it was over. Uh, and I remember saying, geez, man, this stuff is really personal. So politics can get real personal. Working in the White House was an extraordinary experience. I got to tell you, it caused me to take about an 18-month break uh, from the law uh, because it was all-consuming. The stakes were incredibly high. And every single person in that uh, White House, I thought, was on the uh, verge of a nervous breakdown. Carl, um, during that answer, you talked about what I perceived to be control, which is where all lawyers uh, uh, like often revert to. You got to be in control of everything versus flow, getting into the flow. Can you, can you talk to lawyers out there? Is there a way to, to, to teach that or to let them in on, because uh, you flow, like you, you, you get in spots, but your career is a flow. And uh, is there a way to, 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 to teach that or share some kind of secret sauce that you have? I mean, I'm constantly trying to find out where the secret sauce is. Um, And, um, you know, at times, you know, I felt like there has been a pretty good flow. 
And I just think that the, you know, the key steps towards getting that flow um, is just an immense amount of hard work and preparation. You know how hard you work uh, for a trial. Um, you know, you're up, God knows how many nights before you're, you know, you're, you're, do, you're doing a trial. You know, every single document, you know what every single witness has said so that a slight variation, you can figure it out tonally and then use that thing. And then bam, you just won the trial. Um, and so I would say that the first characteristic of a flow is just a massive amount of preparation and hard work. And then you got to just kind of get yourself into like a game mode where you're relaxed enough to allow your instincts to actually take over. And you see this oftentimes in politics, and I'm new to politics, but I know I'm at my best when I'm calm and my instincts are just taking over and working with the preparation that has occurred beforehand. So I think that's what it is. It's a lot of preparation. It's confidence in your authenticity that allows you to play your instincts at the moment where you're just the most credible and authoritative person, either in the courtroom or, you know, on a candidate debate stage. Uh, Carl, is this something you learned? Some of those folks at home who may not have read your bio uh, don't know that you were a very good basketball player except for the fact that you were slow and you couldn't shoot. Other than that, <laughs> other than that that's a problem. <laughs> the, king, the, the, king, the king of slow on the court you're just called you slow, Carl. Other than that, you were – no, but you, seriously, you were a very good basketball player. You played in, uh, in, the, uh, in a pro league, USBL, after you went into Penn, right? After you that's came right. out of Penn. Yep. You played with a great Manute Bowl, as I recall. He's a good man. I, you know, I picked Manute up. You'll appreciate this, Jeff. And Bob, you know, Jeff is six foot uh, four. He thinks he's six six. <laughs> <laughs> that's a damn lie. Yeah. I'm six five and three no, quarters. No, no, no. But, uh, but that's why he's got those high waters. He's wearing pants, uh, you know. That are, Manute uh, Bowl, not me we're talking okay, about. Okay, my okay. So Manute Bowl, man, I went to pick him up one morning. I think it was in, um, in Wildwood, New Jersey for a, uh, like a press thing. Everybody was, like, focused on Manute and Spud Webb. Uh, played in that summer league as well and um, he was supposed to be ready at the hotel at 7 a.m uh, he was not uh, so I went up to the room and I banged on the door and man he opened the door he had you know was half clad he looks down at me and, uh, and I'm literally like three feet shorter than the guy he looks down and I said hey I say good morning and he goes good morning I have never felt a more powerful stream of morning breath coming down. <laughs> I remember you telling me this story. That, oh my God, that USBL, I, there was a team in Wildwood, New Jersey, right at the convention center there? Wildwood Aces, brother. Oh. So the question I have for Carl, you, and that's another quick story. You played in, I think I've got the name right, was it the Capital Classic? It used to be All-Stars from D.C. who played All-Stars from the rest of the world? I did. The rest of the country? Well, yeah, so yep. There was eight, eight all-stars from D.C. Then we would take at least two of the national stars, and then we'd play against another team of 12 uh, national all-stars. Patrick Ewing is on my team. Michael Jordan on the other team. So what was it like to interact real quick with Jordan? What was he like back then? I got to tell you, man, he was a, a perfect gentleman, number one. 
He was not a braggart, number two. He was actually quite shy in group environments. You had a whole bunch of alpha guys there. And Jordan's number one guy was a guy named Buzz Peterson, his buddy from North Carolina. Buzz, as it turned out, white guy, uh, a guard. He was Mr. North Carolina. Michael was a runner-up to Buzz. Uh, Michael was so much better than Buzz. That's crazy. But (laughs) Buzz was a great storyteller. And Mike used to be with Buzz and basically be his number two. Um, The one thing I remember about an interaction during a practice, the practices were the best, um, was that I was happened to be on his team and we would scrimmage and they'd keep score. And it was a third quarter and we were down by eight. And he pulled me over and he said something that I should have listened to my entire career. He said, hey, man. I said, yes. He said, you're going into the lane and everybody knows you're going to pass the ball. You got to go in there and shoot that thing, man. I don't care if you miss it. Just shoot it. And then we all going to be open. And um, let me tell you, we were down. Wow. We won by 20 that game because sure enough, man, I went on a shooting tirade. Missed a lot of those shots. That's interesting because I remember playing ball with you. You would, you would, to your own detriment, not pass sometimes. So the question I had, you know, through this meandering, interesting, you know, <laughs> trip down <laughs> basketball memory land, which I love, is what did you, what did you, there's one lesson from sports. What are some other lessons? Because the flow question Bob asked, you reminded me of this. And I'm, and I'm always trying to get my people that, in my law firm to bring out their own, own potential. What did you learn from sports that you could transmit to folks that you're mentoring? I mean, for me, uh, I think there's so many lessons. Just uh, the big one for me is that you get much better results uh, if you pass the ball. Um, I had a coach who used to celebrate the assist man. Uh, This was a coach in eighth grade where the person who made the pass literally got all the hugs, got the extra burger at McDonald's and whatnot. Um, And I just think that especially in highly competitive businesses like ours, um, we oftentimes think that being selfish is what's most rewarding. Um, In my experience, it's not. Um, It's the past, the willingness to play with other people, the willingness to put... So you're talking about teamwork. 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 A team always beats an individual uh, in uh, in a game. You never... Rarely is it that one person defeats a team. And sometimes a well-coached and well-disciplined team beats a far more talented team. Carl, what, what I identify through this, this whole conversation is you, um, you thrive on uh, passion, competition, challenge. So if you could talk to like law students, young lawyers that – have found their way into the profession and aren't feeling any of that, but they want to find it in the law. Not, not go outside of it. What, you know, how do you tap into that? How do they yeah. tap? How do they tap into that? I, you know, if they're not finding it in what they're doing nine to five, uh, then I feel like, you know, you've got to figure out a way for them to have a different legal experience um, with maybe another set of clients might be a pro bono case might be a court-appointed case, might have nothing to do with the law, might be mentoring, you know, some kids at a juvenile facility. Um, you got to try to find who you are, 
what makes you smile, what makes your heart smile, what gets you up in the morning, then you got to try to bring as much of that to your nine to five as possible. Then you have a chance to be a really happy human being at work and successful. So, so I have a question for you around that. Sorry, Bob. We'll go no, no, go, so, go, go. So, so what you're talking about is, 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 you know, we're talking about self-actualizing in the law and how folks um, really maximize their own potential, their own magic. And part of this is vision. You know, you talked about what got you into, you went to law school really to help other folks. And, and that was my vision myself of what got me into to law school. And it's evolved. Do you recall your vision of more specifically what got you interested in the law and how that has evolved to today? And what's your vision today for yourself? You know, um, I think for me, what got me interested in the law was just reading uh, at Penn and then, in, you know, obviously in high school, but more in college. Uh, about, um, you know, the role of the civil rights leaders and the role that they played uh, in developing law that would lead to uh, integration. Um, Also, as a Haitian American, I saw firsthand um, the role of law in the massive deportations of of Haitians uh, in the 80s. Um, And so I would say that both those histories and experiences you know, kind of crystallized for me where my sweet spot uh, would be. Um, There's uh, Charles Hamilton Houston. You went to Howard University Law School. Charles Hamilton Houston uh, talked about using the law as a tool to fight for people who can't fight for themselves. And I think there's a lot of power in that if that's part of your own spirit. And it is part of my spirit. So Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about you know, taking, connecting to your passion and then actualizing it in, in, in what you do every day. You are the incoming, you're the president elect of the National Association of Attorneys General. Um, a, you know, a fairly, um, uh, you know, kind of mainstream in, in the sense of how the organization looks at, uh, you know, the justice system, both criminal and civil. Civil. Carl, what, what do you plan to do or how can you take all of this that, that you've so passionately talked about and bring it to that organization um, and make some, you know, some, some, some movement, some change, sure. rattle the cage a little bit, shake it up. So what, what are your plans? Yeah, and so you're right. Uh, National Association of Attorney General are made up of uh, mostly um, elected attorneys general from all the states and territories in the United States. There are 56 of them. If you count uh, the District of Columbia and some of the other uh, non-states, um, you know, I've thought a lot about using my president year in a way to have the most impact possible uh, in the room. And um, I happened upon a subject matter, actually was on the beach walking with my niece and we came up with it. Um, and we're going to focus on hate and the ways in which hate has been utilized, um, we'll also have aspects of the law uh, that come into play here, but to divide Americans and to elevate people's own selfish interest. And uh, I'm sure hopeful that my Democratic colleagues and I'm sure hopeful that my Republican colleagues will agree that hate has no place and certainly has no place 
um, in uh, the allocation of the rule of law. Uh, so uh, that's what my initiative is going to be about. Uh, the reason why I sought out the presidency about three years ago, you had to sort of do certain things to get yourself in the mix, um, was because I wanted to elevate the District of Columbia uh, to a level where people viewed it as a powerful jurisdiction. And now we've got the perfect opportunity to talk about hate and the flip side of hate, which is love. Uh, so yeah, I think it's going to be a great year. I'd love to get on the podcast and talk about that. Let me, let me ask you a question about that because hate, people love to hate. And I hate to say it like that, <laughs> or maybe I love to say that, but people love to hate. And it's a, it, it is, and you look at these studies on the polarization of politics and you think people are voting against their own interests. Well, they actually are a lot of times because they're so identified with the cultural group and what they're most, they most love to do is hate the other guys. And so hate animates so much. And that's very, I think, uh, extremely astute of your niece and you to come up with that because it animates what's happening here. But that's a big, big issue. How do you get your hands around that? I mean, I think uh, it is a huge issue. We're lucky to have recruited a uh, spectacular woman, Erin Wilson, uh, who I think is one of the uh, the, the foremost uh, scholars in the area of hate. She did that uh, in the Senate, um, and she is, uh, you know, very, very learned uh, on things like the white supremacy movement. What we're talking about here is really fear and ignorance that are manipulated by people who know that it can be right. used to manipulate. Weaponized, so, as Bob said. Totally weaponized. You can go back to, you know, religion. Okay. Um, and obviously we go, we'll go into, uh, we'll go into Hitler and, and, um, you know, the anti, uh, Semitic, um, you know, brutality and terror, uh, that he caused. Uh, we'll also talk about, you know, bias and hate, um, against Asian Americans that we saw, you know, in world war after world war two. Um, we see it again now with this, quote, China virus, where right. a CBS reporter asks a question, happens to be an Asian American, who knows whether she was Chinese or not, and uh, she gets a talking to from the president about why are you asking that question? Right. Go ask China, I think he Go said. On. Exactly. So, I mean, I think that um, so long as we're able to really make this initiative one about education, not who's right, who's wrong, you're a fool for being a part of the hate. You're part of it because you're a Republican. I'm good because I'm a Democrat. If we can avoid all that stuff, then I think that we have a chance to actually, uh, you know, educate and lift some hearts and minds. Carlos, so, you know, given the, you know, the, the, the passion you bring to the table and the, you know, discourse that's, that's unfolding through the lawsuits, what are you doing to confront what might initially be uh, people on the other side of the aisle when you get to, you know, the presidency, just tuning you out from jump and saying, well, you know, this guy is anti-Trump and, you know, he's all about trying to bring down the president and, and my constituency is all about the president. So I can't align myself with him. It, at, the, at the same time, listen, no one's against diversity. I think in their heart, no one wants to hate except, you know, really, you know, evil people, but, but, but I have faith in humanity that most don't want to hate, but how do you cut through that? Uh, uh, and what are you planning to do about it so that you don't get muted? 
Yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge we face, um, actually, uh, Bob. Um, and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to overcome it uh, by completely stripping, you know, myself um, out of the, you know, kind of the political armament that I wear. Um, and instead, you know, just deal with the issue like we all have when we, I don't know whether you've had the fortune or uh, privilege of going to either the Holocaust Museum or even going to Israel to see their children's Holocaust Museum. If you go uh, into those places, you see unquestionably what the danger is of demagoguery, fear, ignorance, all based on subjugating an entire people to below human status. You see the same if you go back to, like I did recently, to Ghana, and you go to one of these Western um, Cove African castles, where there aren't, they're not castles, there were dungeons there, where over 60 million Africans were put into these dungeons, 40% of them died in the dungeon before getting onto the slave ship. I think that when people are forced to confront those neutral facts, these are all facts, then I think it sensitizes folks to, to learn in a way that's not blue Democrat or red Republican. And so that's what we hope to do, but you're exactly right. The biggest obstacle I have is in wearing a Democratic hat. And, and, and Carl, isn't part of this about, I mean, there's facts and, you know, you've educated a lot of people over the years and about a lot of things um, around race. You've, you know, you and I have had a lot of conversations dating back 35 years and, and which have been, you know, you don't know this, a big part of my own development. And the, so there's those conversations, but there's, there's emotional content. I once heard Bill Clinton say, you're not going to get to them by facts all the time. You're going to get to them to use more of a, a scientific term by limbic resonance, the emotional mm. part of them. them. Isn't part of this about how do we introduce and speak from a place of more vulnerability so we're not shouting at each other? And how do you introduce that as a national leader? How do you do that? Well, I think you hit it right on the head there. Uh, you know, you caused me to skip a little beat there, pal. Uh, I got a little vulnerable <laughs> myself, <laughs> okay? Um, but I do think that, you know, facts, um, illustration, uh, voice, pictures, video, music, senses, you know, um, are ways to get people to get out of their own prism and just observe what happened and why it happened, and thereby gain a greater understanding of why people may be accentuating differences, not for accentuating differences' sake, but for the sake of dividing people for their own sake. Um, so that's the challenge here, is to really bring this in a multidimensional way where it's not just cold history but it's something that people can touch and feel. I feel like I, I really sense that if we can do that, folks will connect to their inner humanity um, and then be able right. to sort of side on the, that can never be right, um, right. you know, side of the ledger. So 
Carl, we talked a lot about vision in, in the episode. If you, um, if you could make your vision come to fruition in its clearest sense over the next five years, let's say, um, what's Carl Racine doing, feeling, and making happen five years from now? Yeah, I think if I had one thing to focus on uh, in five in the next five years, what I would focus my energy, effort, and attention on is on really, really attacking the sense of hopelessness um, that permeates some of our most underserved minority communities, places where you know kids literally don't grow up with a consistent adult. Um, mom or dad may or may not be there. Um, the peer group that they're associated with is not going to be engaged in positive activities. And that in a real way, um, the path forward as they see it is a path that is only going to go up to the age of 20 or so. And that, you know, confinement, jail is all part of life. And so is, you know, an abrupt death uh, by gunshot. Um, I think I'd focus my energies on trying to uplift uh, those young people. Well, we want to thank you. This has been a, a great hour and we could go on a lot longer, but we got to, we got to end it. And we want to know, uh, we'll continue this conversation because I know Bob and I both want to be part of um, the healing that the yeah. country needs the, the divisions that we see that have been there for so long that, you know, you go back to slavery or you go back to the 65 Civil Rights Act that really divided us even further. We want to be part of that. We're going to follow you and we'll have you on again. So thank you. Thank you guys very much. Love, love, love the podcast um, and in continued success. Carl, thanks so much. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Iron Advocate and that you take what you've learned and integrate it into your own personal practice. As always, we leave you with a minute of mindfulness. Breathe in. Breathe out. And we'll see you next time.